Hey Artemis, are you interested in joining us as an ambassador? Check out our 2023 ambassador application, which is now open until March 13th. You can find it at artemis.nwf.org. And with that, enjoy the listen. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is the wonderful Mandela von Eden. Did I say that right? <laughs> yes, you did. Thank you so much, Ashley. I'm really, really honored to join you guys on the podcast today. Mandela von Eden, you pronounced it correctly. <laughs> okay, good. I, I practiced <laughs> in my mind for some time. Um, for listeners that don't know, Mandela is our communications guru here at Artemis and also for NWF Outdoors. And so... She's just amazing in her own right, and today our guest is Carly Kutnick, the new Artemis Program Manager, and so it seemed fitting to bring the three of us together to do this episode. So Carly, welcome. Thanks, Ashley and Mandela. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to, to kick this off, and you know, it's interesting. I, know, I remember when we did Marsha's last episode, she came away from that and said, wow, I have a whole new respect for guests on the podcast because these questions can actually be pretty tough to answer. So, <laughs> um, so we're just going to dive right in. Carly, can you okay. tell us what's in your freezer? Well, I have, um, so I didn't get anything this year, which was a huge bummer, but I do have some leftover elk um, that I was able to pull from my dad's freezer. Um, and I'm hoping to fill it with some turkey meat this spring. So uh, I need to do a little bit more hunting. What do you have in your freezer? Oh my gosh. <laughs> How the turntables for office fans. Um, I... <laughs> That's a great question. Well, one thing I have in my freezer is a giant frozen hide from uh, the buck that I shot this season. I meant to send it out to a tannery, but it's still just sitting there. Um, I don't think I have it in me to do it myself this go round. But other oh, than... I feel like you should try. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I mean, I've done it before with. I don't know. I don't have a flashing beam, and that's really the that's the hump I'm trying to get over but not trying very hard because you can make one for like no money. Anyway, uh, lots of venison. We have some ducks and some quail. Uh, thanks to my husband. Uh, I don't think we have any fish left. We've got odds and ends, some stuff for the dogs and yeah, that's it. It's mostly just deer right now. I, and I'm curious, Carly, are you, are you a turkey hunter? Is like, have you turkey hunted a lot before? I went last year um, as an adult for the first time, and so I'm hoping to actually get one this year. And I've got some good friends that have a ranch, and the turkeys just cruise through every evening. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I'll get lucky. That's the, that's the spirit. That's my strategy every time. <laughs> um. Mandela, can I? I have to ask Mandela, what's in your freezer? I know you shot a was it a spring buck earlier this year in South Africa? Yeah, boy. We say yebo, which I guess, you know, it, 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 in English, I guess it means hell yeah. Um, so <laughs> I have two freezers. One is in Mama Africa. It is filled with a springbok, which is our national mammal. So I had the opportunity mm. to go hunting in the Karua, which is a dry desert plateau in Southern Africa. And that was a beautiful experience. One day I'll share it with you guys um, with a blood ceremony and all that. But I, um, I ate as much as I possibly could and then left it for my father to enjoy. So he's been sending me pictures of my springbok being roasted and shared with family. And uh, then in my freezer just here in Montana, I have a steelhead and then um, a couple pieces of hide uh, for some crafts that I'm going to be doing this summer. Yeah, well, that's awesome. what I have in my, my freezer. Awesome. Um, out of curiosity, sorry, sorry, Ashley, I don't mean to be derailing this, but out of curiosity, does springbok taste similar to other like North American ungulates? So springbok is a very popular game meat um, and hide uh, in Southern Africa. It is one of the only populations of antelope that is not declining. Um, and I guess when you look at it, it's pretty similar to the pronghorn or the antelope that we find here oh. in the 
rolling plains of Montana, but it's it's a delicate animal. It's a bit smaller. Um, and cheetahs love to eat them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of <laughs> cheetahs. And so if they think it's a good meat, then I'll get on board as well. But um, it's popular to make it into a carpaccio. So we cut it very thinly um, for, you know, appetizers and sandwiches. And then um, it's, it's a very delicate meat. So I usually would cook uh, my steaks for 90 seconds on both sides. And uh, I don't think it's a similar taste to the elk and the venison that I've tasted in North America. Um, it has that special, that special African spice and flavor to it that it's hard to describe. So I, I cordially invite you both to join me in Africa and we'll, we'll share some springbok over the braai, over the fire. Ashley, sounds like we need to plan a trip. Yep. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that All would right. be very neat. On anyway, that, thank on, you. Yeah. On that note, uh, Carly, please tell us a little bit about who you are. So I am from La Vida, Colorado, and which is a small town of about a thousand people um, in southern Colorado. And I grew up hunting and fishing, um, spending a lot of time outside and um, yeah, really, really thoroughly loving the outdoors. Um, like when I was a kid, I would like drive the hay truck uh, when I was definitely not old enough and it had a clutch and I was not, it was a standard transmission and it was not a good situation, but people would throw hay bales on the back. So that's kind of the quirky childhood that I had. Um, and I, when I left La Vida, so I graduated La Vida High School, I jumped over into the military and attended the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, where I got a degree in biology, which was a really extraordinary um, program. I, I had a blast and was really able to delve into um, my enjoyment and love of kind of Western Western biology um, that I had observed quite a bit, but had never actually, I, I don't know, I guess I had never actually like uh, learned exactly what it was or how it worked or um, the science behind it. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. And then I commissioned as an officer in the Air Force, and I first went to Florida, where I did um, only a little bit of fishing, which I now in hindsight regret, and no hunting, which I very much regret. Um, but I did spend a lot of time on the beach playing beach volleyball. Um, and I worked there as a um, bioenvironmental engineer, which is like OSHA for the Air Force. So we dealt with people's occupational and environmental health um, for the Air Force bases. So we would take care of industrial shops, ensure that they were not exposed to chemicals or sound or radiation. So a multitude of different hazards. Um, simultaneously, I got my master's from the University of Florida um, and in ecological restoration. And I spent some time at the Jones Center up in Georgia to look at the longleaf pine ecosystem. Um, I got my uh, red card, so I'm a wildland firefighter, but um, I've never, I've only done prescribed burns. I've never done any suppression um, out here in the West. I think that's a little intimidating. The fires are quite a bit bigger, um, a little more intense. Um, and then after my time in Florida, the military pushed me up into Alaska, which was quite an extraordinary drive. Um, I really love the, the North, um, where I continued my work as a bioenvironmental engineer up there, um, worked in sexual assault response um, and uh, advocacy, or I guess prevention, prevention and advocacy. Um, and it was, that really changed kind of my worldview in terms of, I don't know, um, I think learning more about the psychology of people, how people operate behaviorally. Um, and I, yeah, I now have a lot of appreciation for um, trauma-informed care and awareness of other people's experiences, which was really fascinating. After my time in Alaska, oh, I shot a caribou in Alaska, which was probably my favorite hunt, and maybe we'll get to that later on in this, um, this chat. But after Alaska, I moved down to Colorado and I got the opportunity to teach biology at the Air Force Academy um, for about three years. And it was it was an absolute blast. It's so much fun to to work with young people who don't really have an interest. So I taught a lot of core biology and then I also taught vertebrate zoology. But it was a blast teaching folks like engineers, um, humanities majors, the basics of biology. Um, and teaching them really how biological systems are 
the foundation for most of our engineer like our engineered designs um and yeah and how it's the core of everything um that was that was again a lot of fun and then after i taught at the air force academy actually we, we rolled through the covid wave there and we i was i had the opportunity to work on a team that did um, a lot of covid testing and so i had we did uh I had a couple colleagues that were, they had PhDs naturally, and they um, developed a, a, a mathematical model where we were able to test a certain number of cadets um, at the Air Force Academy each day and actually decrease the amount of, or decrease COVID spread so that we could still maintain in-person courses, which was pretty extraordinary at the time. Um, and I got a lot of lab experience during that time as well. Um, and then I left the military I joined the Colorado National Guard and I am and I worked for Colorado Parks and Wildlife for a bit. Um, and uh, both have been, both were really great. CPW was a lot of fun in terms of um, getting to know the natural resources world, um, learning how state legislature works, um, how bills are passed and written. Um, that was really where I got more of my policy experience um, and a lot of natural resource experience. Um, and then I jumped back and then on the other side, I worked for the National Guard planning um, exercises for them um, and doing some search and rescue work kind of as like a search and rescue coordinator on the back end. Um, and that was that was also a blast. So that leads me to here where I applied for the Artemis program manager because I really wanted to get back into natural resources. And so I'm I'm pretty thrilled to be working with the two of you. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where we can. We can take this program next. Wow. That's I there's a lot I didn't even know in there, which is surprising to me because I thought I knew a lot about you. Um <laughs> I think I can speak we, for Mandela when I say that we are all so thrilled that you're here and to be working with you. And I wanna jump back to maybe a couple points in your story as you described it. And for the listeners, Manda, I'll just put hearts all up the screen. I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I didn't either. Um, so, Thanks. Carly, I'm curious to know more about um, your master's work in Florida. Because I, in when I was in undergrad, I got to go down there and be on a prescribed fire in Florida. That's my only Florida experience, really. Um, but it was fascinating. And I would love to know more about what you did as part of that. So that, so yes. So my master's was, unfortunately I had to approach it with the non-thesis option simply because there wasn't enough time or um, time because I was working full time and I wanted to be intentional if I did end up doing research. Um, so instead I, I really took a, I guess I did like more of a capstone-esque sort of thing. Um, and I spent time learning a lot about the longleaf pine ecosystem, which was actually, um, I found really challenging, especially coming from only Western ecosystems where I, I simply knew it from observing it. Um, and the Southeast operates quite a bit differently, um, but is really an extraordinary place. Um, so, it, you know, I did the normal things like looking at invasives, looking at uh, the different types of, the, of ecosystems. And, um, and then I took special focus into um, looking at how fire actually affects the ecosystem. And so while some ecosystems um, burn every 50 to 100 years, like here in Colorado, others need to burn every three to five years. And so southeastern United States, particularly Eglin Air Force Base, like the uh, like the very southeast, um, those areas get some of the highest numbers of lightning strikes, which um, is really fascinating because there's a lot of plants all of the vegetation there is really um, fire friendly and is and we actually see degradation of those ecosystems if fire doesn't go through there every three to five years so um so i found that fascinating and then i took it upon myself to actually um work with the military base to um or so i worked with the um nature conservancy to get my red card. And then I worked with the, with Eglin Air Force Base and their natural resources branch to actually go out and do some burning. And we would burn upwards of 4,000 acres at a time, which is, which is a lot. I, I have a lot of appreciation for folks that choose that as their full-time career. 
Um, and so we would have a bird, a helicopter in the air. Um, we would have several um, four wheelers and then um, folks just walking with drip torches. And so because I was so new to it, I, I just had the opportunity to do a drip torch. Um, and it was very, very cool to see, um, see that ecosystem one burn. Okay, really, really quick side note. Um, I didn't think that I loved fire so much until I watched a massive fire. It's, and I think everybody probably has a little bit of that in them of like, you're in complete awe. And also it's one of the coolest things that you'll experience being that close to that much heat and uh, intensity. So I don't know. Have, did you experience that, Ashley? Uh, yeah, it's a thing for sure. I was like, "Oh, I could, I could be an arson, an arson after the, or arsonist after this," <laughs> um, which I haven't. I haven't burned anything down illegally. If you were wondering, good to know. Um, Mandel, have you ever burned anything? I have worked as a wildland fire tender operator, so I drive oh. uh, the wildland fire trucks. Um, we have type one and type two, and. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting job. Um, so we have the baffles in the back that help with the swaying of the water. But when you have a half tank right. and you're navigating a logging road, it can be it can feel like a class five rapid. Um, you know, and it's sometimes that, and it's sometimes just sitting in a camp chair uh, next to a pond or a creek where you're staged, listening to the radio and and filling up. And the most recent fire that I worked on was in the Jocko, and. A friend of mine actually spotted it. It was called the Crooks Fire. And so they often name the fire after the person who spotted it. Um, <clears> and we were just wetting the roads to keep the dust down for all of the uh, machinery that was uh, clearing forest uh, in anticipation of the fire continuing to move. So, yeah, um, I've been around fire. And uh, most recently, you know, I'm constructing a home of, in the mountains of northwestern Montana. And there's a beautiful forest there full of ponderosa, larch, and Douglas fir. And um, so we've been slowly but surely trying to open the forest up so that those large can get uh, big and strong and it can um, be more welcoming to the elk. And so uh, during the permitted fire season, we will sometimes have a, um, a little fire. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, force of nature. I would say that I'm more of a water girl than I am a fire and firecracker type of lady, but it's good to do one thing every day that scares you, right? Just like Eleanor Roosevelt said. <laughs> It's true. That's very true. It's a really good point. Yeah, I I think it's really fascinating how we've um, really changed our opinion and understanding of fire. Right? It's it's no longer a terrible thing for our ecosystem, um, and and actually we encourage right we encourage um, certain intensities depending on the geography of where you're at. But um, yeah, I think it's amazing how quickly and well it rejuvenates. Um, I had a boss who who said he very much disliked that we called them burn scars. He's like, because there's so much rejuvenation and life and like you run into the succession levels. He was like, it was just absolutely, it, burn scars aren't scars. It is an opportunity for that ecosystem to simply shift and go into a, another, yeah, it's, it's next level or restart. So, um, I lost track of what I was saying. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'll, I'll keep us on track here. Um, thanks, thanks. Okay. I want to know what drew you to Artemis? That is a really great question. So um, back in, back when I was getting out of the Air Force, there's a program called SkillBridge that the Department of Defense authorizes for all military members. And it can be up to six months where a military member um, still maintains their status as a, as being in the military and their benefits and they can take and do they can take or with that in still instated they can go and pursue a civilian like on the job training or a specific training for a future career that they would like to do and so it's a um, program um, pushed by congress that ensures that veterans can actually have and uh be prepared for a new career when they leave the military. So um, that leads me to the first time I ever jumped on Instagram, which was, that was maybe three years, I guess it was three years ago now. And I um, was looking for a whole bunch of different sports women's programs and there, there really weren't any um, until I ran across Artemis. 
And I actually reached out to Marsha at the time and I, I said, hey, I would really love some field experience um, because I've, I've mostly spent my time managing and at a desk um, and I, I was yearning for that. And, I, and Artemis seemed like a great program to um, do that with. Unfortunately, um, it didn't quite work out. So at the same time I was working on building on doing a skill bridge program with the forest service and then also with colorado parks and wildlife and then i opted to work with colorado parks and wildlife as opposed to artemis or the forest service um and and so that was my first interaction with um artemis and i just i was very impressed at the professionalism at her ability to um get back to me and um and then i've i guess i've followed artemis over the last couple of years and I love that it's a source of quality information with um, awesome, awesome people that like any any of them you would want to immediately be friends with. Um, and and I just loved the authentic nature of the program and the people that it attracted. So I when I found this position open, I was just beside myself and I was really excited to apply and um, and now I'm here. So. Like I said, I I have a lot of respect already for the program using being a consumer of the materials. And now I'm thrilled that I get to develop some of them. Hey, Carly, I've just got a little question here in regards to kind of your childhood, taking it back a little bit. I know we've, we've kind of jumped around a little bit and you already talked about your childhood, but I'm very curious about your mentors, uh, your parents, um, and maybe even some knowledge you have about your ancestors. Um, you know, one of the things I love about podcasts, like a book, whoever's listening out there is using their imagination, you know, to travel with us today and, and to learn. So if you don't mind just kind of starting by painting the picture of where you grew up and then talking to us a little bit about mentorship and why that's important to you. Uh, and then I also would love to eventually hear some of your earliest memories of, of hunting and fishing. Okay, um, so like I said, I grew up in La Vida, Colorado, which is a town of a thousand people. Um, and we moved there when I was in kindergarten, but prior to that we had done extensive camping, um, extensive fishing, um, and then every fall we would go dove hunting um, out in Lamar, Colorado, which is a really cool place. Um, and my folks always, it, it was their dream to, um, purchase property and and raise their kids in a rural area. And so um, they bought 35 acres at the base of the Spanish Peaks, um, which is an elk wintering ground, which is super awesome, by the way, when you wake up in the middle of the night and there's 200 head of elk outside your window. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and so starting with mentors, I would say my parents were probably the most instrumental in um, developing my love and passion for the outdoors. My mom loved to um, camp and hike and bike and um, and run at the time. And then my dad was really the hunter and angler um, and and he would and we did a lot of work outside, right? Fixing fence and um, spreading alfalfa and um, doing just a couple of uh, just a number of different things as a kid outside. Um, so I'd say those were my primary two mentors. As for maybe the development of my biological knowledge, I would say that goes to um, my middle school and high school science teachers. And so coming from a small town, you have one teacher that, that teaches you, you know, in middle school and all of high school for that particular subject. And so um, Blake Bile and Rita Casper were really cool um, science instructors that um, created a, a thing called um, summer ecology. And so we would travel around kind of the West and we would learn plant identification, animal identification. Um, we would do a backpacking trip um, where, you know, we didn't bring enough food, so we had to go fishing or you would just be hungry. Um, and so I think it was a really, that was a really fun time in my childhood when I reflect on um, getting outside and actually learning and scouring. Um, yeah, it, not scouring, learning about and scouring, I guess, the books of biology so that you could apply it. Um, so I really enjoyed at one point um, looking at edible plants. Um, and now I, I guess, looking forward, I 
aim to fulfill that mentor role for my three nephews and and future niece. And um, we go on nature walks often. And my sister said she was doing the laundry the other day, and they had a bunch of rocks and seeds and plants in their pocket, um, which made which cracked me up. But I, yes, I was just tickled that they are starting to fall in love with the outdoors. Shifting into what my childhood was like. So my, like I said, my folks bought 35 acres with elk wintering ground. I actually got my first deer, um, probably four or 500 yards away from my house. Um, it was the last half hour of the last day. And that was, um, and I missed one shot prior to that. Um, I got buck fever, which I, I, I didn't understand what that feeling was where you're just uncontrollably shaking. You can't calm your breathing. You can't um, focus enough to actually squeeze a trigger and make an intentional shot. Um, and so I went out again later that evening and um, we saw a buck and it was just a, a little two by two. So just a little guy, but um, what an incredible feeling to, yeah, to take an animal's life and eat it and learn how to process it. It was, that was my first big game hunt. Um, rewinding even further back, I have pictures holding two doves. Um, we would, when we would go dove hunting every year, um, or when my dad would go dove hunting and then three of us girls would catch toads and collect the dead doves. Um, and then we'd I make dove this. poppers. <laughs> it's, it, it's a, yes, we, we spend a lot of time on the four wheeler and, uh, yeah, it was, I've just always been around hunting and fishing. Um, and the frog, the toads are, are not my favorite thing. So, um, I don't, yeah, I don't love them. Um, but I think that was also learning. It, it was just a different, a completely different ecosystem, right? Going into the grasslands and, um, versus yeah, the, um, mountainous areas that were around my house. Um, let's see. So dove hunting, like I said, was a notable part of my childhood. And then, um, I'd say my dad, so my dad took us turkey hunting. Um, he usually had the tags. I remember being really jealous on one of our trips. We met a gal from Texas. Their um, legal age is like, it's really young. It's like eight or 10. And in Colorado, I think it was 12. Um, and so I remember being super jealous that somebody like two years younger than me had already killed a large, a large um, ungulate and I, I had not. So I guess I've been all over the place with this conversation, but um, yeah, growing up, being able to simply sit and observe um, and, and appreciate, so just spending the time out there um, really grew my appreciation and love. I have one last story to share with you from my childhood. Um, and the La Vida, Colorado ended up having a large drought Call. It had to be, it was probably 20 to 25 years ago. And it, um, and the three of us girls, our, our driveway was about um, 600 meters. And um, we would have to walk up and down it every day to hop on the school bus. And every day when we get off the bus, we'd scan the creek bed below to make sure that there was, um, to make, to make sure that the bear wasn't necessarily at our house or um, or down there at all. And so it was always a difficult um, decision to decide whether we were going to walk down to the house and be, and be closer to the bears when we were getting there or um, stay at the top of the driveway and, and hang out there until dark, which was yeah, nerve wracking. So, so it was a, it was a bit of a nerve wracking experience. I'd say as a child is making the decision of what's, what is safer, but we always made it to the house. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like it worked out for you at least. Cause you're here. Yeah. I'm still around. Haven't been mauled by a bear yet. Fortunately. Oh man. That was, that was great. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our partners. Proas believes women hunt hard and deserve the gear to support their hunting and outdoor passions. What sets Proas apart is our belief that women require performance outdoor gear for all of their hunting and field pursuits. Their layering systems are quite technical but philosophically simple. Optimal base layers, 
prime insulation layers, and durable shell layers to stop wind and water. Take pride in not being one of the guys. And we're back. So before the break, we were talking about um, a number of things, your childhood, your career trajectory, and I want to pivot for a moment and ask what you think the importance of DEIJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, is specifically to the sporting community. That's a great question. So DEIJ, um, I only learned about this through the military lens, which we called equal opportunity. Um, and so when I joined Parks and Wildlife, that's when I actually reframed that information to the to the DEIJ um, terms. And it was, um, I, I suppose, my experience working in sexual assault uh, response and prevention was very instrumental in in already entering that realm with a baseline, like a foundational knowledge. Um, when I um, continued my time outside of the military, in terms of how it applies to the sporting community, I feel I, using I guess utilizing my personal experience first and foremost. I've always been very fortunate to have a group of mentors that have um, brought me along as the, oftentimes, I guess I don't think I've really ever hunted with other women except my sisters. Um, yeah, so bringing, bringing me along and including me in teaching, in, in the learning and teaching of um, how, of what sporting is and how it works and, and what taking it and, and conservation and what an animal's life means when you take it. So I guess I feel very grateful is my start. And now, as I've learned more with regards to access to the outdoors, introduction to these things and and ensuring that representation exists, I think um, the DEIJ um, push currently is really, really valuable and important in ensuring everybody can both feel safe um, secure, welcomed, and um, and also have the opportunity and the ability to get there. Um, I think all of those things are unbelievably important. Um, I think the sporting community is often thought of as a white male sport, and I have seen a shift. I, I did some mentoring and I did some hunting with some cadets at the Air Force Academy, and it was really phenomenal to teach a um, young female cadet how to how to um, hunt, hunt elk. And she got her first cow that year. Um, she packed it out. I, it was just really a, an unbelievably, unbelievable experience that I could make that space and create that teaching moment for her in hopes that she could perpetuate that in the future. Um, so, so in short, yes, I think it is very, very important that we, um, both bring people into this space, teach them about this space, and and ensure that they're represented in this space. Yeah, I'd be curious to know, I guess Mandela too, what you think about this, but one of the things that I didn't think about before becoming a part of Artemis was access. I mean, everybody talks all the time about access, hunting, fishing, we don't have any access, it's too crowded. You know, we've got landlock issues, you name it. But I think the experience of being a woman or a non-binary person or woman-identifying person out in a setting where you're in a place that may be unfamiliar to you to some extent, and maybe there's cell service, maybe there's not, you're far away from your vehicle, there's other people out there that are actively trying to kill things, Um and so everybody is armed to some extent. I mean, that can be a really challenging and fraught situation to be in, I think. Um, and I say that from mm -hmm. experience. And I I just didn't, I didn't have any awareness of that before being a part of Artemis. And I think since being in this role, I've 
my awareness certainly has expanded in terms of something you said earlier, Carly, about like having empathy for other people's experience and really just awareness. And so, I don't know. I think that's one of the things that Artemis does a good job of talking about. And I want to see us moving forward, do a better job of talking about other facets that of access or, you know, all the equity and inclusion elements around hunting, angling, trapping um, that may not be part of our direct experience, but that, you know, we're able to elevate and help work through. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I always find it, I I mean, I think one of our foundational things in Artemis is storytelling. And I always find it fascinating to hear different people's perspectives when they go out into the field um, and, and when they're preparing to go out into the field. So I, yeah, and just in general. So I, I think it's really important to have all of those different voices at the table and, and being able to um, learn and seek to learn from them. That was a really beautiful sentence you said there. To seek and share knowledge. I really appreciate that. It's a principle that I live by. Uh, Carly, I just have a question about the evolution of Carly as a conservationist. You know, I, I'll never forget the first moment that I, um, you know, hunted octopus and then started to learn about plastic in the ocean and and, and, and the connection between plastic in the ocean and overfishing and, um, you know, the lack of food on our table in Africa. So I'm just curious about some of your earliest memories and and the evolution of Carly as a conservationist and, you know, where are you on that path right now? So maybe one of the most notable things from being out in the field was um, we hunted a lot of public land when I was a kid and we visited and camped a lot of public land in public areas. And I remember my dad almost every time we went out, he said, it's very like one, appreciate our public lands and two, ensure that they are here for future for future generations, continue to use them, continue to take care of them, and continue to advocate for them. And I think that probably kick-started um, or, or helped me focus on that being, right, our, our lands and our, our vast open spaces as being one of the most important things that I think North America offers. Um, and and I guess I have since built on that. Um, and the reason I chose more the ecology route was because it um, is a full, it gives you maybe the full picture of an ecosystem and ecosystem health and conservation being really a, a tenant of ecology. Um, I, I like to compare and contrast conservation and preservation. Um, and I think that there is a time and a place for preservation, and I think it's unbelievably important. I've used the word important an awful lot in this uh, conversation, but I think it's it's really necessary for certain areas. I, I was having a conversation with somebody um, maybe a year ago, and they were frustrated that there were certain lands in the state of Colorado that are owned by the state land trust that are not accessible to the public. And and while I don't think preservation is necessarily the best approach, right? So still some management of those lands to ensure that they are getting um, the proper amount of fire and the proper amount of um, grazing and the proper amount of, of care. I think that there's something to be said. Preservation is okay. Conservation is better, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so one, I think simply, again, being present in the outdoors and then two, learning about the value of conservation, um, how we manage our lands, how we ensure that we prepare our lands um, for the long term, right? Because things are constantly changing, particularly um, with climate change, what we're seeing right now, right? We're seeing the movement of species further north and further south um, and the expansion of their ranges, the increase of their, and, and that's, insects in, in, in many cases. Um, the decrease of those species and the decrease of their habitat because the vegetation simply can't um, sustain its life cycle 
in a hotter dryer or whatever the climate in that area is or is changing to. Um, and I, I guess I think it's really, yeah, I think conservation is, is the answer, right? By educating people about um, the progression of our lands and the cycles of, of what those lands will be is, um, I, I think it ensures that they have the knowledge and ability to defend them and advocate for them in the future. But I digress. That is that takes me away from maybe my conservation journey. But um, a lot of my, yeah, I think using maybe my public lands, um, using it as a place to get outside. I don't know, learn what the edible plants are, maintain my knowledge on some of the shrubs here in the West, and um, and then particularly hunting and fishing, less fishing, more hunting. Um, I think I am seeing how exceedingly necessary it is that we ensure that we still have those spaces um, for the future. And I think conservation gets us there. That was a long ramble. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the, selfishly, I want to hear two stories, although it might be the same story. You decide, Carly. Um, number one, I want to hear about your caribou hunt. Number two, I would like it if you could tell us about one of your favorite moments in the field. Okay. Well, I will, we'll, we'll make them maybe the same one um, because the caribou hunt, um, yeah, my caribou hunt was actually uh, a very scary experience. So um, hunting caribou in Alaska is, is a very curious thing. They open the season. So I hunted the 40 mile herd up by Fairbanks and um, they open the season when the herd comes through and they close it and you have 24 hours to um, show that you filled your tag and then they close the season immediately. So you always have to be tuned in, even though there's no cell service, which is quite challenging. Um, and so the weekend that they said they were opening, uh, I found a couple of friends and we um, drove up there. It was probably two hours away from, I lived in North Pole at the time. And it was one of the easiest and scariest hunts of my life. But we, we show up, we see the caribou on the side of the road. Um, so does everybody else. So there's probably 15 cars pulled over and people are running out of their cars, like laying on their stomachs and they just start shooting. I've never seen hunting like this in my entire life ever. It was, it was nuts. And we walked up to a guy and talked to him and I was like, why aren't you, you know, why don't you hike up there and like go and try and get him? He's like, there's not enough time. And so he just kept firing. Well, being, um, I think, young, fit adults, we decided to hike this hill, this mountain. It was, it was pretty, it took us maybe a half an hour to like huff it up there and we were cruising. Um, and there was maybe two feet of snow on the ground, which was cold and very cold. And so it was very cold as well. Um, it was Alaska in the, in September, maybe. Anyway, and so as we're huffing it up this hill, People don't stop shooting, which I, again, had never experienced. It was it was terrifying. You could hear the, the bullets buzzing, like zipping over your head, um, which I thought was um, like a war sort of thing only. But uh, turns out it was caribou hunting in Alaska. So anyway, we make it up to the top and um, settle down. We sneak in a little bit closer and we're hiding behind a rock um, and there was a large tree that had fallen right in the same area. The landscape was pretty open. It was um, in the summertime and in the fall, there's, um, it's it's a bunch of permafrost. And so there's layers of lichen. And then the top is usually like an outrageous amount of blueberries. Very cool. Um, if you get the chance to go blueberry hunting up north, also a big recommendation. Um, and huckleberries. Anyway, so we, um, we settled down and it was, and there was maybe 10 or so caribou. 
Um, and caribou are really interesting because some of the females actually also are antlered, um, not all, but some. Um, and their antler, um, their antler, I don't, I guess I don't know what you call it. Their antlers that also change depending on which herd they're in. Um, so the 40 mile herd, I, I ended up getting a smaller caribou, but um, they have kind of palmation down at the bottom and the brown tines and then up at the top as well, whereas many other herds don't have that. So we're sitting there watching these 10 and as the bullets are zipping past them as well, nobody hit them in case you were wondering. So it was just ridiculous shooting. The uh, maybe eight of them or so went over the other side of the mountain and um, and we continued to watch these two bulls spar in front of us. And we probably gave it maybe five minutes of just sitting in awe and being within 100, 150 yards of two bulls spar sparring. It was, it was extraordinary. And um, so then I settled down, was able to um, take a single shot and um, mid spar, I, I shot the um, larger caribou, waited a little bit um, and walked out there. The curious thing about Alaska, because it was so cold, like I said, I think it, or it was so cold. I think it was like negative 15 to negative 20 that day. Um, we ended up having to, we just took the, instead of gutting it out there, um, or I guess we, Hmm. I think we did gut it out in the field and then we took it back. But you have to ensure that the meat actually stays warm in Alaska, which is which is a very different mindset than um, anywhere far, further south. Um, you're trying to keep your meat much cooler, depending on the season. And uh, so I was trying to not let the meat freeze. Um, and so we kept the whole animal in the back until I was able to bring it into my garage and and to do the rest of it, um, process the rest of it. Um, and so that really wraps up the hunt, but I think maybe the more fun part is I was able to introduce a number of my friends after the hunt to um, how to actually process an animal. And um, it was very like showing them how to skin, um, skin an animal and uh, let it cool then for a week. And then I had a I taught them how to actually continue to process the meat and create the cuts and um, package it so that it decreased the amount of freezer burn. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. So um, in terms of eating caribou, I really, I really, it was, it's more of a tougher meat. And so I really enjoyed making like pot roasts with it. It was, it's delicious. So if you get the chance to eat caribou, you should do it. Okay. We need to revisit some elements of this story. Hit me. First and foremost, how far were the shots that people were taking from the road? Mm, five, 600 yards. Oh my God. Okay. I know there's people that can do that and are good at it, but that's not me. Okay. Well, so these were not those people. So. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> so what, I mean... Why? Why did you do this? I feel like I would have, at least this is me, Ashley, 32-year-old self-talking. Um, <laughs> if I rolled up on that situation today, I think I would tell myself I'm going to find another herd. Um, was the path that you took not in the line of shooting? Um, it kind of was. It, <laughs> it, kind, it kind of was. So when we started, it was, and then finally we decided to... Um, veer hard right to avoid the the rest of the bullets um yeah it was was it was not a smart it was it was not a smart thing in hindsight but you're right at 25 with two people there that are like we're here to hunt let's hunt I'm like okay so um yes i think that it was more of a like no i'm here i'm here to hunt caribou and so i should hunt caribou and also like i said with the migration the caribou are either there or they're not. And to go into the far back country in winter is, is in fact dangerous in Alaska. I mean, it's dangerous everywhere, but I think in Alaska, because there aren't as many resources, it's, it can be even more nerve wracking. Yeah, that's a good point. And fascinating. I had no, I, I've never heard of a hunting season that worked that way. That was just mm -hmm. like, it's here and it's gone and it's not a date on the calendar. It's completely dependent on the animals. Exactly. And, and I think Alaska does that with their salmon fishing as well. Like once they, so they, 
um, or I think they've changed the take limits, but I know for like the commercial side of the house, they'll open it for a week or two, depending on what um, uh, the department, the Department of Wildlife, I think it's just the Department of Fish, Wildlife and Fish, Fish and Wildlife, um, what they determine. And so everybody has to be like super cued into when those seasons close, because yeah, you will get a ticket if you don't respect or adhere to that. Mandela, do you have any thoughts on the caribou experience? I mean, I'm just very inspired. Um, and I really appreciate that we're taking it back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment being storytelling. So, you know, thanks for elaborating on these stories. And I hope that uh, it doesn't go too long before you're interviewed again for the podcast. Um, well, thanks, Mandela. For sure. So, as sportswoman, I sometimes find, often find, that I um, encounter conversations with folks who don't necessarily see the connection between conservation, hunting, and fishing. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different approaches that I've taken over the years, you know, to try to explain to folks, you know, whether it's Pittman-Robertson, where conservation funding comes from, you know, the, the intimate um, experience and importance for me in regards to connecting with the food that I put on the table. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could uh, share some of the ways that you interact with folks who don't necessarily yet understand you know I, I think that there's a lot of potential mm -hmm. for folks to learn and 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 then eventually maybe even themselves become um, a hunter and angler one day but i'm just wondering how you've been approaching that conversation or those questions these days uh, to maybe just provide a little guidance for our listeners um, because i know as sportswomen it's something that we encounter from time to time and and for me it's a it's a learning opportunity so i before we get to the maybe the conservation conversation, I, I'd like to chat about um, my interactions with people who aren't particularly keen on hunting and fishing. Um, and and usually, I I enjoy I think listening to their the multitude of reasons that they have, but I also think that they value connecting with the land. And oftentimes it's not it's simply because they either don't know how to connect or don't know how to get into that community. And so I do like to introduce and um, maybe encourage people into that space, um, be it feeding them wild game, which usually ends up folks love it. Um, and it, if cooked properly, I will say, but that's any food. Um, and um, and then taking them outside to, to have a hunting experience, I think, um, it's a whole it's a whole experience. It's it's understanding where your food comes from. It's understanding how much time, effort and energy it takes to find an animal, take an animal, process an animal to get it on your dinner table. And so that's maybe where I try to relate to them most is something that they can relate. What, what is their common ground? And oftentimes it's food. Now, with regard to conservation, I think that there's also common ground there. Um, I think, but I mean, goodness, we've seen in Colorado a significant increase in people moving to the state because they love the natural resources. They want to get outside. And in terms of taking conservation, right, and, and talking about how, how hunting falls under that umbrella, um, one, as, as you know, it's funding. And so I've had a number of conversations with, I guess, mountain bikers um who were unfamiliar and didn't know where the fund where how our our public lands um and wildlife areas are are paid for um because they're uh, and we call them consumers right we call them um yeah both anybody using the outdoors is a is a consumer um or is a consumer even though we call it consumptive versus non-consumptive use of the lands so consumptive would indicate hunting and fishing and trapping or or some sort of take and then non-consumptive would just be a user um, or being present in the land. And so oftentimes um, it's kind of marrying those two. It's teaching everybody that regardless of how much time you spend out there and what you're doing out there um, is consumption, right? And then to maybe increase the interest in hunting and angling, I think usually starting small, um, teaching them and showing them where habitats are, teaching them in uh, habitats, wintering grounds, summering grounds, migration corridors, 
Um, I think people actually, they definitely lend an ear if you talk about it with regards to the species and then overall relating it to food. That was, that was a long way of saying, um, I, I don't think that just building the connection of hunting is conservation. I think that you have to give it the full picture and people are more accepting and appreciative of that. Um, so between funding and, and wildlife management, right? The reason we have biologists looking at our populations is so that we can maintain, sustain, and um, yeah, maintain and sustain them. So wonderful. Thank you, Carly. Yes. I always appreciate, you know, uh, seeking out different teachers because everybody seems to have a different way of explaining things. And how do you explain like, it? Sometimes it might not um, click for me at first, but then the teacher will explain the same concept, but just using different language. And it's like, oh, yeah, that mm -hmm. makes total sense. Um, you know, one of the more recent conversations I had uh, was with a elderly woman who just, you know, was was um, kind of caught on the concept of, of the killing. And so um, I, and it came up because she asked me how I knew her son and her son is my eye doctor. and We hunt together. So uh, t towards the end of the conversation, I, uh, I asked her if she ate meat and she said that she did. And um, to, it, it, it's, it was, I was really hesitant to say, you know, that they're, they're, the animal dies um, because I thought she knew that. But, um, and I really wanted to make sure it wasn't condescending or anything like that. And, and mm -hmm. when I said that there was an animal death involved when you eat meat you know i don't remember exactly how i phrased it but she said she leaned back and she says you know what i guess i never really put that much thought into it and um and i i, I was kind of amazed uh, that that which was kind of obvious to me she hadn't thought about and and it's something that i've been um you know researching and reading about a lot in some of the countries that i've lived in in regards to how connected a lot of the children that i've worked with are with where their food comes from whether it's they go out their back door and they actually catch a python and they roast it on the spit, uh, you know, or they go out and they and they fish, um, and or they you know head out with their grandfather and, and learn how to harvest a, a game animal. It's just that beautiful connection with where that food comes from. And sometimes I fear that people aren't as connected when we just buy it at the grocery store. And I mean, I know everybody listening kind of knows this, but. Um, it seems like I, depending on the person and depending on the buildup of the conversation, um, it can go many different ways, but I just find it to be such a beautiful learning opportunity for me and, and mm -hmm. for them. And, and I think that in our society and where we are right now as a nation, I think it's just so important that we really fine tune our active listening skills. You know, so for me, that mm -hmm. means truly listening to what someone is saying instead of thinking about what you're going to say next, you know, um, and so that's something I really try to do when I'm talking to someone um, about hunting and fishing and conservation. Uh, just really try hard to listen to their perspective, maybe reflect, pause, um, you know, and then respond. Um, so that's just some of my approaches. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. I, yes, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I seek to learn and to understand um, first. Um, and then one last thing I think on that is, and maybe to reiterate some of your, some of the things that, that you were saying is, um, I think our society generally is very, very removed from both death and what our food sources are. And I, I'd argue that the ag community could probably um, second that, but I think those are two challenges that um, are maybe working against the sporting community um, but also a great opportunity for the sporting community to teach people, right? Where does your food come from? How does death work? Um, and and where do where does waste go? Um, so I think all three of those is, are are curious things to delve more into at a later date. All right. With that, I think we can transition to our weekly closer, hits and misses. What have you been aiming for? And how did it go? And I think normally we start with the co-host, but I think Carly might be primed better for this. So let's start with Carly and then we'll go to Mandela. So a hit and a miss, I will. Um, I, I, so my mule deer, and I think that I, did I mention this on another podcast, Ashley? No. My mule deer? Nope, that's Maybe. fresh meat. Oh, okay. Well, 
I went uh, mule deer hunting earlier this year and I misranged my mule deer. And so I shot under it. Um, and that was a very disappointing um, day, but we had, I had hiked, I mean, goodness, hiked miles and miles um, to get back to a mule deer. And finally I found a kind of a lower Creek bed um, full of willows that, that a couple of mule deer were hanging around and um, it was very low light, very early morning. And I think my rangefinder was hitting the berm in front of where they were actually standing. And so there was like a 250 yard difference, I think in, in my ranging, which is a lot. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, especially so publicly, but um, that was definitely a big miss for me. So hopefully next year goes better. Hopefully turkey season goes a little better. What about you? Hits and misses. We've all got them. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Mandela, what have you been aiming for? Thanks for asking Carly first. It took me a couple of moments to kind of reflect on what I'd like to share. Uh, since Carly went back a little ways, I might just go ahead and share my experience, which was very transformative um, involving the hit in Africa with the Springbok. Um, you know, in that part of Africa, in the Karua, we we have a blood ceremony when you harvest your first buck in that region. And my father was there with me when I was field dressing the animal. And so for the blood ceremony, the elder rubs the blood of the animal on your face and that you eat the liver um, right from the animal on the spot there. And folks keep asking me about what that experience was like. And the only word that comes to mind is just transformative. You know, to have my father there, to know that I was going to share that meat with him, um, to go into kind of a meditation while I was eating the liver, which is a first for me. Um, I've never eaten, I've never eaten a liver straight from an animal before. Um, mm -hmm. One of the surprising hits of that experience was, you know, it was quite a journey to get back to, to the farm to where we were going to process and um, put the animal in the icebox. But uh, I had a, this blood on my face for about five hours and it was one of the most phenomenal facials I've ever had in my life <laughs> because of the plasma and the blood. Um, you know, folks get to know me. I'm, you know, a little out there. I'll, I'll definitely try lots of new things, especially when I'm traveling. And, and for, for me, this was part of honoring my harvest, honoring that springbok, also honoring um, the, the the culture in that region. And uh, yeah, for for someone out there who's curious about an interesting way to, um, you know, plump up the skin on your face <laughs> when you're out there, uh, that is something that I um, I, th I consider a, a, a hit. Um, with a miss, I, I, my, I can't really think of anything right now, um, other than the fact that I wasn't able to, to, to eat that entire spring block and, and you can't bring it back to America. You can't, you can't travel with, with wild game. So, um, mm. I, I, I find myself sitting here in Missoula, uh, longing for uh, a spring block steak, but I'm happy to know that my family is eating it as we speak. So, uh, I've never answered that question before and hopefully that is, um, that answer is not a hit and not a miss. <laughs> All right, well, Ashley. Yeah, most of my hits and misses are like, I don't know. I'm very squirrely on this question, apparently. They're normally in process or a combination of the two or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I would say, you know, yesterday evening we went and drove out to a pond. And so it was just my husband and Charlie and I. And my husband was fishing and Charlie's like really into whatever it is that we've been doing lately in the outdoors. So we had done something similar the night before and he had caught a fish, a teeny tiny little crappie. And so ever since then, she's been saying fish, fish, which she pronounces as shri. And um, so she's talking about shri, shri. And when you ask her what a fish says, she opens and closes her mouth like. And so we were down by the pond and it was just, it was beautiful. The sun was setting, it's big sky in that landscape. And so everything was like pinks and purples and super quiet. We heard a coyote howl and uh, I'm painting this peaceful scene, but really what was happening was Don was fishing and trying to get farther and farther away from us because Charlie was enamored with throwing rocks into the water, like big rocks. I was very impressed. <laughs> um, she mostly like just, she started them on their trajectory and they rolled into the pond. Um, and then there was a hickory tree there. And so there was a bunch of spent husks from um, nuts that animals had eaten earlier when they fell. And so we were just smashing them between two rocks, which she was also like thrilled about. Um, so that was probably just like a, I don't know, 
30 minute situation that was a, a major hit for me over here and I think for her too but uh but yeah thank you so much both of you for being on this episode I feel like this was fun and maybe we should make this a regular thing um this would be a lot of fun we could interview each other each time yeah <laughs> just round robin exactly uh yeah in between the caribou and the springbok I I don't know this is I know there's a lot more there that we could explore um so thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. And until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. <laughs>